0: Are you all seated comfortable to square on your body? Then we'll begin with episode 155 of Love That Album. Hello out there. My name is Morris. You're listening to Love That Album podcast. We're part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts, and I'm really super excited to have on the other end of a Skype connection a man who I meant to have on the show a year ago. And we'll talk about why that was in a moment, but I'd like to welcome to the show for the very first time a drummer, a multi-instrumentalist, a singer, songwriter, man of many, many musical talents. Mr. Ian Kitney, welcome to the show, Ian.
1: Oh my God, you're talking about me. I'm talking about you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Morris. It's a great, great honour and a pleasure to be uh,
0: talking with you on your show. It's a great, great honour to have you on the show. Before we sort of get into a bit of your history, why we're here together, we're going to be talking about the small faces... Final full album, they did start another one after this, but the final full one, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, which was your pick. Well, we went through a list of about 10 or 15 albums that you said, yep, I'd be happy to talk about any of these. I thought, right, that's the one, Small Faces. And we'll talk about all of that very, very shortly. But for those of you out there who don't know the work of Ian, and surely if you're our age and you lived in Melbourne I can't see how you wouldn't. But for those of you outside Melbourne, or certainly outside of Australia, Ian was a part of the band Overnight Jones, and about a year ago or so, I had Dan Warner and James Stewart on the show talking about the... Overnight Jones and Warner Brothers days. I think you were working on the night that we wanted to do that recording. So it's a shame we didn't get you on for that. But Ian was part of Overnight Jones, Tim Rogers and the Temperance Union, the great Tim Rogers, who I think has taken part of his act from Steve Marriott. But you can clarify that. And a band that I saw you in a couple of times, which I wish you'd recorded more. I've mentioned this many times to you. Sally and the v necks, the veritable super group. You, Pete Lawler, <laughs> Mark Wallace and Paul Thomas, all from yeah. Weddings, Parties, Anything, and Sally Gasty of Titters. So yeah. a, a real super group. And I wish you'd recorded more. You said, look, just because I'm not doing an episode talking about The Overnight Jones with Dan and James, we'll talk about something else. So here you are. And before we get into talking about the small faces, I'd like to just sort of go through a little bit of your own background. So like for years, I only knew you as a drummer. And if that was the only instrument you played, then that would have been enough because I love your tight style. But I discovered on YouTube a whole bunch of film clips, all these little bits of you playing every instrument and singing and doing multiple vocal harmonies and the like. And I thought, holy shit, this guy can do everything. And then last year... I bought your latest album, BGM, and we'll get into that in a minute. But just a little bit of your background. So I didn't know that until we made contact that you'd relocated to Japan. You'd been creating all these solo albums and really, truly solo albums. You're doing everything on your own. So... What prompted the move from Melbourne? Now, you started out in Wagga Wagga, you grew up in Wagga Wagga, and how did you end up in Kyushu in Japan?
1: The short version is that by, uh, so I got married in 2007 to um, Makiko in Melbourne. So by 2010, she had been in Australia for four years, and was beginning to miss her um family miss japan understandably she said to me you know i miss japan i miss my family i think i want to i want to go back there and in some circumstances that could be disastrous. However, in our circumstance, um, I it just thought, hell yeah, let's go. You know, <laughs> I had had kind of not enough. I won't say I'd had enough, but you know, I was reaching a point where I just thought I can't do this uh, this music roller coaster as I have been doing it for so many years. I can't do it anymore. Plus the responsibility of being a married, responsible kind of person. You know, I, I thought that I want to do something different, you know, completely different. So I just said, you know, let's go, let's go. And so it was difficult to break off from everything that had been uh, part of my life up until that point in Melbourne and, and, of course, with family and friends. So one of the most difficult things for me was telling Tim I had been with him since 1999 at the wow. twin set. You know, he came along to a Sally and the V-nex gig at the, wow,
0: the Evelyn. No, Punters Club? Mm-hmm. Both legendary venues here in Melbourne.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. When they were legendary venues, you know, yes. that, that um, from that very beginning of his first sort of solo outing, you know, I'd been with him in Twinset and then there was a bit of a break before he got the band back together uh, with a few changes and then became the Temperance Union. And it was pretty much me and him, original members, you know, from for 11 years. And I've just felt like, can I tell Tim? Because this is the thing that I just absolutely love the most. I had fallen out of love with a lot of other musical stuff in Melbourne, but this was still the the greatest sort of thing for me. And then you know I just sort of said, we're going to move to Japan. There was some a little bit of shock and a little bit of nothing, you know oh, that's happy for you, I'm really happy for you. So, that was great then
0: sold a whole lot of stuff and then off we went did you keep any of your own musical instruments did you keep your drum kits and and guitars and bass or did you buy them all again
1: we had to compile a 1 cubic meter package for transporting from australia to japan with the nitsu company so we made 1 cubic meter pile of stuff at home consisting mostly of suitcases full of recording equipment that I had, three guitars, (laughs) two acoustics, one electric in hard cases, and another couple of suitcases with clothes and
0: things. That's pretty much it. Uh, (laughs) So you bought a new drum kit over there?
1: Well, no. I was so lucky. We lived for four years near Osaka in Kansai, very close to the parents of our great friend Yumi Umiyumare, who is Australia's greatest buto artist. I did a lot of sound design work with her and was nominated for a Green Room Award. Wow. I think that was 2009. Her parents lived not far away from where we lived in, in Kansai, and we were there one day, and you know, Yumi's brother uh, had a drum kit there, and she said, do you want a drum kit? And I just went, <laughs> yes, and she showed me this thing, and it's a 1980s Yamaha six-piece 22-inch kit and just the standard kind of snare and what have we got
0: 12 13 14 and fifth, and 16 toms i gotta confess like listen sorry listening to the album from last year bgm yeah possibly it's because of your recording style and i'm saying this in a positive way it yep. sounds like a much older kit
1: okay so you probably notice if you look in the fine details of all my notes and things on Bandcamp, you'll see the words lo-fi appear quite a yeah, lot well, there you go <laughs>
0: Yes, it is lo-fi, but that's how I love it. That's why I yeah, love.
1: Yeah, great, great. Yeah, well, that's just, I mean, I, I've always loved lo-fi kind of stuff, anyway. So this is how it's all ended up with the kind of microphones that I've got, the old heads on the kit. So anyway, I I got that kit for nothing, and and I still use it here with a few extra bits and pieces that I've picked up
0: along the way. Briefly talking a little bit about BGM itself, as I said, I bought that when that came out, and right. the thank, songs, you. Oh, pff, thank you. Songs. Oh, thank you, thank you. The songs you've written sounds stylistically like much of what I imagine you grew up listening to just going through a few songs here so you know Voices sounds like a really great surf song mainly on account of that low guitar twang When I try to sleep All I hear are. Ashes and Dust and New Dryas are very, very proggy. In particular, New Dryas sounds like a missing Yes song. Day after day, more because of your vocals than anything, sounds almost rattle esque rather than Beatlesque. <laughs> but it's it's all Ringo's toms and George Harrison guitar on there. And all I want is a great tribute to glam music. Just in my head, you might say, no, you're completely wrong. Well, not about day after day. That's going to be Beatlesque or Ruttlesque. It has to be. But was this album intended or do you always sort of intend I'm going to write something that, Covers this stylistic love I had growing up. How do you approach these songs arrangement wise?
1: Well, Morris, there's no getting anything past you at all, is there? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so naturally, I grew up with Beatles so original albums in the in the house and a few other things, Roy Orbison and Shadows and, and that. Then, you know, through that, you know, went through the whole sort of teenage discovery of Beach Boys and things, but. I've got to say that what I've ended up doing in this room that I'm in now, you know, which is very crowded and cluttered, is explored those influences, definitely, inescapable, but at the same time, maybe drawing on things that were immediately to the left of those core influences. So I'm talking about like... Badfinger. Badfinger has been probably in the back of my mind as I've been playing and you know sitting here recording and playing and constructing these songs. You know, Badfinger. What's his name? Mike. Mike Gibbons. The drummer from badfinger he's such an underrated player. Of course there's Ringo in, in some of these fills. Definitely, you picked up on that anyway. Those, oh, those big tom,
0: they're a signature thing.
1: Absolutely, you know, but as you probably already know through going down the YouTube rabbit hole is that Ringo's left handed and he has this kind of swing and this approach to doing a drum fill that is uniquely his. We can make the same sounds and we can make the same kind of shapes in the air, you know, but you, compared pair anyone else's Copy of Ringo to Ringo's originals, and mm. you'll immediately pick him. Yeah. So, I, I never tried to really copy his thing immediately. What I was doing was really looking at Mike Gibbons' stuff in Badfinger, you know, and so good his playing, his timekeeping, and then, of course, his drum fills in whatever songs, you know, he does drum fills. I can't even name one of the drum fills in, in any of the songs at the moment, but they're so beautiful, Ringo esque, precise, right on the money. So, Badfinger. Is definitely at the forefront of any of those Beatle kind of influences. And so then you mentioned the Beach Boys.
0: I didn't, but, I didn't but you didn't. Mention go. The Beach Boys. But I, I should I should have, because you have some harmonies I, on this album.
1: I, I mentioned the Beach Boys. And so <laughs> <laughs> um, and so definitely, you know, there was a huge period of, of my life where I was just sort of immersed in Brian's genius and went to see him at the Opera House actually on the Smile Tour. To to be in the same room with him, you know, and and that band. Wow. Great. So it seems like I've really sort of been, not channeling, I won't say that, but, you know, thinking about the Beach Boys while I'm recording something, you know. But, again, right to the left of the Beach Boys, the Raspberries. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Eric Carmen and the Raspberries, you know, I... Have only just recently fallen in love with some of the raspberries tracks, and I've always been a quiet Eric Carmen fan. And so, you know, hearing raspberries stuff for the first time only a few years ago, I just it just hit me, you know, wow, okay, this is where I'm thinking on
0: for some of these things. You know, beautiful harmonies in that band. Did Big Star ever play a, a part in any of your thinking? As long as we're talking about the whole power pop sort of thing, yeah, for
1: sure. Big Star did, but I, I was I've never ever thought about that stripped down guitar really great guitar guitaring kind of <laughs> band thing I, I probably might do something like that soon i'm actually halfway through finishing the next album so wow. um, uh, so maybe there might be room for something like that i mean big star teenage fan club all that direct line 90s 70s back to the beatles 60s yes. thing you know that thing really excites me to listen to and to musicologically explore that evolution but I haven't thought about putting any of that into what I'm doing. Big right. start. Anyway, so, yeah, Raspberries. Jim Fanti, the drummer from Raspberries. Now, his drumming really blows the wind up my skirt because... He's an amazing timekeeper. Again, like Mike Gibbons, right? But when he does a fill, it's this massive sort of thumbprint. This is fill number, you know, four thousand nine hundred and thirty-three out of my toolbox, and it's a it's a killer, you know. Now Eric Carmen's song, you know, that classic "All by Myself," right? Mm. Yep. And so uh, you know, it was all that stuff about uh, Rachmaninov's It's it's based on Rachmaninov, you know. Then he was a classically trained pianist anyway, you know. So I don't know who the drummer is on that track, and if you listen to that song and just listen to the you know the the drums uh when they finally come in it's just solid beautifully chosen feels here and there that i've played so much for that song but then there's a solo and the solo is a uh, slide guitar very george harrison style which you know i've been sort of channeling in some of my basic guitaring solos in in this stuff <laughs> my stuff here but underneath the slide solo The drums do one bar, about one and a half bars of time, and the rest of the four or five or six bars after that, he's playing this long, slow, musical uh, drum fill. And it's just really bizarre. Mm. You're focusing on the slide guitar, and I'm so hoping that it's Jim Bonfanti who's playing drums on that track, because I know that... First Eric Carmen's uh, solo stuff, he did get some Raspberry guys to play, you know. So uh, he's he's a great player. Mm. But anyway, so Raspberries and Badfinger are really more
0: at the forefront of my influence. We'll see where uh, the next album goes more into your Sex Pistols phase.
1: There's a track on there that is directly <laughs> sort of... There we go. Hey, Excellent. what 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 do you think BGM stands for? I was going to ask you, what does
0: BGM okay. stand for?
1: I'm talking to you from Japan. Uh, in Japan, they um, they call background music BGM. You heard it here, folks. When
0: you go ordering the album, don't go looking for background music. Go looking for BGM. I'll be putting a link in the show notes. Hey, at this stage what we're going to do is we're going to go to a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the focus album of this episode which was out of your list which is the 1968 album by the Small Faces Ogden's Nut Gone Flake We'll be back shortly You're listening to episode 155 of Love It Album
1: I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rollarchaeology.com all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion.
0: And we're back Morris over here in Melbourne Ian Kitney, Formerly over here in Melbourne Now over in Kyushu, Japan We're here to talk about The Small Faces And their album of 1968 Ogden's Nut Gone Flake And Ian This was on your list Of possible albums To look at Mm. Uh, So you said to me A few days ago, he said, I've got a great story about my discovery of this album. At least I think it was in reference to the discovery. So (laughs) the floor is yours. I want to find out what is this great story.
1: I mean, my story of discovering this album is... As you mentioned, I grew up in Wagga Wagga, and my family were not really from Wagga, they were all from Sydney. They moved, and when I say they, it's my parents and my two older brothers and older sister. Now, when I was born, they were teenagers, so um, I came along very late, but they all moved down to Wagga from Sydney just before I was born. Much to my older siblings' horror, Wagga at that time was pretty much a desert with a you know, few shops, and they, I think just made plans, you know, they went to school, and my sister, fairly quickly, just sort of, uh, she was old enough, she just went back to Sydney. So, uh, growing up in Wagga, as a high school student, well, by the time I'm in high school, my brother next up from me, so there's 14 years difference, he had sort of got to the top of the music ladder in Wagga, drumming, and he went back to, moved back to Sydney in his early 20s, and he worked his way up the the ladder in in Sydney uh, music. He he lived in various places. When I started to catch the train up to Sydney as a high schooler by myself during the 80s, and I would take, you know, an armful of records with me and go up to stay with him for, I don't know, holidays, you know, summer holidays or something, and you know, stay for a week up there with him. He was a musician, and so it was probably not that convenient for him to have little brother coming along. I don't know, but, you know, I got to sit in on some of his band rehearsals. And, and that was a lot of fun and truly ex- inspiring because he was at that time and, and still is now, you know, I think the finest drummer that I've sat down and watched. You know, his precision of his drumming was and and, and still is just so perfect, really, really perfect. Um, where were we? Oh, okay. Going to Wagga. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, going going to Sydney as a teenager, so staying with my brother and his uh, magical house full of records, drums. Okay, so we're in Summer Hill in Sydney and in his back room he had a a great stereo system I remember just hours of going through thumbing through his record collection you know you found Ogden's
0: Nut Gone Flake
1: I did eventually find the Ogden's Nut Gone Flake album and it totally blew my mind just the album cover because he had the original round sort of I don't know four or five page gatefold thing I don't know what you would call
0: it it was the round shaped like a tin
1: yeah which your previous guest Yes, Shane Pacey. He mentioned I was when I was listening to that your show with him. He mentioned he's got that album. Yes. So yeah, I found that that album and I put it aside because I just wanted to, you know, the the, the artwork and the the fact that it was a round record label, a round record cover, totally sort of caught me. So I, I put that aside in my listen, want to listen to list. I've opened up the five folded gatefold, whatever it is that the tobacco tin thing you know and then pulled out this record and put it on the old record player and you know the drop the needle and and the first thing i hear is a piano through a wah pedal A mic'd up piano through a wah pedal. And I just thought, okay, this is fantastic. Whatever it is, it's fantastic. I love it, you know. Yeah. So that's the first track is the Ogden's Nut Gone Flake title track, which is an instrumental. So Small Faces, you mentioned you bought a, a, a best of or a compilation?
0: The listeners can't see this, but here it is. There so, it is, the hits, uh, yeah. Okay, so basically in the 80s, I was a fan of Swanee, John Swan and he had gone and put out a live album i don't remember what it was called but you know apart from a couple of his own songs it's just basically him and his band having some fun with a bunch of cover versions they did a led zeppelin medley and i don't remember what else i haven't played the record in a thousand years but one of the things that he did do on that which i think might have even gotten some airplay on triple m or eon fm or whatever they called themselves at the time was tin soldier I hadn't heard that song. I mean, I'd heard like on radio, they might have played Ichiku Park or maybe even Lazy Sunday, but I'd never heard Tin Soldier and then hearing John Swan's version of that, I thought, My God, this is R and B heaven. Yeah, 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 okay. I have to search out the original. So I went down to Brash's, I got home and I played the album at Infinitum. But the strange thing is I didn't search out anything else. Although I think at the time the Small Faces catalogue was not easy to find. I mean, I don't even think like well it was, would have been the mid eighties or something like this when CDs were just coming in. I don't think they'd been put out then, and even the records were hard to find. So I made do with this Greatest Hits album for years. I did get a chance at some stage to hear Ogden's Nut Gone Flake and was well familiar with Stanley Unwin's narration, and we'll get to him. Mm. But for many years, this was my gateway to their music. Over the years, I have had a chance to listen to some of their other stuff, and you know they started out as this great r and B. I I mean, I, I think What the Who called maximum R&B, mm. uh, and really small faces personified that. But I really have a soft spot for uh, their album. There are about four small faces which I think deserves some love because it's got a more folky approach to what they did, which from what I'm reading would have probably been more in line with what Ronnie Lane wanted. I know Steve Marriott was the heavy R&B guy and Ronnie Lane was saying, no, let's pull this back. Let's do this a little bit more folky And there. Are, you know, songs like uh, I'm Only Dreaming, Show Me The Way, Here Come The Nice and Itchy Park. What did you do there? I got high, What did you feel there? Yeah. I always thought, and I might have mentioned this on the show once before, I always thought that instead of saying, we'll dry the tears there, I always thought he's saying, we'll try the cheese there, which (laughs) in a psychedelic song makes sense, you know, because nothing makes sense. We'll try the cheese there it just works I want to give a quick shout out here I don't know how much we're gonna do so like talking about the history of the band apart from you know where it's relevant to this album but I want to give a shout out to a guy called Alan Patterson who is in the love that album Facebook group and he's an incredible author he's written 32 ebooks. About a whole range of bands I first discovered him while I was reading up some stuff about Pentangle and their album Basket of Light which is an album I've been in love with since I was a kid and I discovered that he was probably the only person at least the only person I was aware of who'd written a book about Pentangle so I thought well surely he's gone and written a book about the small faces and he has and it's as thorough as it gets he goes not just into the small faces but he'll go into Humble Pie and the faces and Anything that had anything to do with the guys before and after. I wanted to sort of get an idea where they come from, uh, how they met. He does go into a lot more detail as well about an analysis of all the songs. I didn't want to read that too thoroughly because I didn't want to be too totally influenced. But it's a fantastic book. A big shout out to Alan Patterson. So if you're out there, look up Alan's album archives and check out any of the books that he's gone and written. He It was like a huge project that he undertook for, I don't know, 10, 15. 15 years or something like that to write these books. So um, I think he's stopped that now, but books are still available. Alan, I'm pretty sure you're listening to this. So uh, thanks very much for providing some good reading matter there. God, I want to get into those. Wow. It'll fill up your Kindle in no time. Okay, great. Now, I wanted to bring the subject... It seems unusual because I think normally we'd sort of do this within the context of talking about the music, but I think I'd like to start the show, start this part of the show, talking about a man who looms large in both of our minds, Kenny Jones. You'd normally sort of think, right, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, Steve Marriott and his voice or Ian McGlagan and his organ playing, you know, just I think a drastically underrated organ player. I don't hear many people talk about him. And, you know, Ronnie Lane as a bass player and songwriter and all that sort of thing. But Kenny Jones tends to get maybe put aside a little bit because I think a lot of people were a bit underwhelmed by him when he joined The Who for the Face Dances album after... Keith Moon died because really ostensibly from that time the Who were a very different band they weren't the band of old but to be fair the final album with Keith Moon Who Are You was not really the Who of old anyway a lot of people gone and said and I can see why they'd say it that Face dances sounds like a Pete Townsend solo album but I, I don't have a problem with that and Kenny Jones when he joined The Who became very much like a timekeeper to my mind very very straightforward very straight to the bar but really 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 solid and dependable which is not what a lot of people sort of expect out of The Who I can't be held responsible for behaviour I lost all contact with my own Savior, no one locked me up because I failed to phone up. I can't better live forever, life alone. When you listen to what Kenny brings to Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. To me, he sort of sounds maybe like a tamer version of Keith Moon. Those fills, the production, it sounds like what we were going to get on Tommy a year later. So in a way, he is a precursor to what Keith Moon did for a period of time. The fills are maybe a little bit less extravagant than what Mooney was doing, but Tommy was... At least the original Who version of Tommy. I'm not talking about orchestral, not talking about the film soundtrack, which has Kenny Jones playing on it. But the original version of Tommy is a more reserved, more tame sound for the whole band, and certainly even for Keith Moon. And like, amazing to think like their next couple of albums were The Who Live at Leeds and Who's Next, where they finally captured what the band as a live entity were supposed mm. to sound like. But coming back to Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, I love what Kenny Jones does on this album. And I really do think that based on what he did there, putting him as the drummer in The Who, besides the fact that he was a friend of the band, musically, it makes sense. Mm. Um, What he ended up doing in that band was very different. And I actually really like Face Dances. It's hard, the album that came after that, not so much. But Face Dances, I think, is a great album. And even he shouldn't try to sound like Keith Moon. He's not supposed to be a carbon copy. He's doing his thing. But at least in terms of what he does on Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, with those fills around the kit and that production value, it sounds to me like what they were eventually going to do a year later on Tommy. So where do you stand on Kenny as a drummer and what he contributed to both the Small Faces and on the Who albums, if you want to go that direction too?
1: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I will. Have you heard the Small Faces' first album called Small yes. Faces?
0: the Decca album, right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, they're teenagers and they're just full of them Themselves and it's like the, I don't know, second song on there or something, Come On Children. <laughs> It's The Who, done by a different band, you know?
0: <laughs> yes, yes.
1: But I've got to say, you know, they didn't pull off The Who, like, I guess at that same time, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, you know, is is genius kind of art rock. But Kenny, it's the most that he, he ever did the Keith-style flailing is mm-hmm. on on that album. I think their very first album, and of course he's doing some of that just perfectly tight in the pocket meat and potatoes, brutish, mm-hmm. tough playing that has that that took him all the way through to the Who and beyond mm-hmm. as well. So that's how I kind of look at him as sort of brutish,
0: mm-hmm.
1: tough player, meat and potatoes, but. He's got that little bit of swing that you needed at that time, I suppose, in that kind of R&B. God, what happened to (laughs) R&B? Every time (laughs) I, every time I think about R&B, you know, Craig pops into my head, or you know, sorry, I just hit my hi-hats. I'll just turn them off.
0: (laughs) As you do, as you do. Yeah,
1: but yeah, the maximum R&B. It was tough. It was brutal and brutish, you know. But it had a kind of a swing. The white British players through their filter put into it, you know, and, and he had that uh, has that, I should say, because he's still got it. the Jones gang or something, is it?
0: Yes, I haven't he's, heard them, but I, I'm aware of them, one. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's still going there, that's great. I heard an interview with him a few years ago, Oh, well, sorry, recorded a few years ago, where he said, and this is sort of going away from the drumming side for a second, but he said that he was overseeing an animated production yeah. of Happiness Stand. Have you seen that? Does that exist? No, Pete Townsend is, I don't know, producer it or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, come on, Pete, Kenny, hurry up.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah back to his drumming so uh, yeah look just brutal I mean you know uh, Glyn Johns produced all that early stuff you've got the greatest hits there probably most of that's
0: produced by Glyn Johns I'd say. They're not saying that on the back of the album they're actually saying produced by Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane which may be bullshit we don't know.
1: Yeah who knows? it's a compilation sort of thing anyway isn't it but Glyn Johns you know if he didn't produce it he engineered it where the the line is drawn is anyone's guess there but he just got awesome drum sounds in his whole Career, you know, I think uh, he and his brother, Andy Johns, both producers. I think it was Andy or glenn Johns, produced Who Are You? So Kenny, the first album, the first Small Faces album, it's like, you know, the first song on the first album is Shake, you know, which is a cover. I think most of the album is covers, you know, but it's so full steam ahead, brutish rock drumming, you know, and and he's great. He's really, really great. I love him. And yeah, all through, I think, sha La 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 Lee is the last song on that, uh, which is another cover, but. I always thought it was a small faces song, you know, from, from way back when I was just, you know, exploring.
0: I mean, I think they did a lot of that album as covers against their will, but this was ah, yeah. put on them by yeah. uh, Don Arden. Was it? Like, yeah. He, he was a. Was yeah. he the first producer, or was before he sold their contract to uh, Andrew Lou Goldham at Immediate? Yeah, horror stories in the background. The cuts on the album on Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. By the time they get to that, the drumming is. I guess the word you use was flailing. It's less tight and it's more I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, more feel, more open and so like I'm thinking of tracks like the title track, which itself was a revision of a song from maybe the first immediate album.
1: Yes, the second single, which was uh, I've got mine.
0: Just sit here every day, wondering what you'll have to say I prefer the Ogden's Nut version, the yeah, instrumental yeah. version, because it sounds more psychedelic, more wide, more open. It's got orchestration. I mean, but the the original version is just a great pop song. There's no, yeah. there's no. But Kenny's drumming in that, you know, just all around the kit, basic but beautifully produced. And Afterglow, some great drumming in that.
1: Absolutely. Hey, do you know? Do you know? Um, Daryl Braithwaite did did Afterglow
0: did a cover. I did not really. <laughs> Was this during the Sherbet days or or post I think- Ricky I think- Lee? Jones fame or something It
1: was 1977
0: Oh wow So during the sherbet years
1: So back to Kenny's drumming. So that first track, when I say flailing, you know, I mean, it's, the, it's that first album where, you know, we got something to prove is underlying a lot of the playing on that album. And he was doing some flailing on that, I think, just to, to you know, they're all buddies, you know, with, he was good friends with Keith anyway. So I you know, the, the things are going to cross over. But I think after that, you know, definitely on this album, it's it's pretty loose playing, but also, you know, great tight stuff. You know, he's he's doing some fantastic fills. Afterglow again, you know, like uh, his fills in that are just fantastic. In the last chorus, there's this long triplet fills, you know, all leading really, you know, like, here we go, here we go, here we go. And then bang, he's, he's back into the field, you know. So he, he's drinking a lot. <laughs> during this period. Booze was a huge part of their thing, and playing drunk was, you know, I guess a a big part of their shtick, you know, so, ah, God, you know, it's great. Song of a Baker on Ogden's, you know, Song of Mm. a Baker is massive, heavy, 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 massive, heavy pop. As we And it sounds like, you know, I mean, you've probably done this. I know I have broken the bottom skin on your snare.
0: I have not, no. I've never broken a skin. I've broken drumsticks, but I've never broken a skin. Sure, okay.
1: Well, I I have mid-song sometime I don't know when in during the eighties probably, nineties maybe I I broke a, the the bottom skin on the on the snare I don't, I don't know how the hell that happens but it happened and and I could hear it mid-song you know the snares just don't work because they're not they've got nothing to. Um, vibrate against and so you end up with basically you're playing this dead timbali (laughs) and that's (laughs) that's what song of a baker sounds like it sounds like he's broken the, the the bottom snare skin they've probably been doing take after take and you know at some point he's broken that you know and and maybe had they've not noticed and and maybe they've just thought oh we got to finish it we have to finish it come on let's go one two three and then go into it and and that's what it sounds like it doesn't sound like the rest of the album's snare sound which is pretty good you know i mean it's great sounding drums on that album I don't know if it's Glenn Johns produce or engineering or producing this one. I, to be honest, I haven't even looked.
0: I don't know. I'm looking at the CD. Oh, this is such a crappy edition. There's no production information at all.
1: But anyway, it, it does sound like that. Just on that one particular song, "Song of a Baker," which is genius, massive, heavy proto.
0: Proto-heavy grunge. Which was a big thing in 1968, I think what a lot of bands were doing.
1: Let's look at the context that this album came out within. Korean's Clearwater Revival's first album came out same month as this one. Oh, wow. Which is great. Pink Floyd's Saucer Full of Secrets. So if you listen to, I mean, what what's the song? There's a song that I think Ian McLagan sings
0: on Ogden's. Long Goes and Well Depart.
1: That's an Ian McGlagan song, and he sings it. And it sounds
0: like it's coming straight out of the Pink Floyd saucer full of secrets. To me, that's the weak spot on the album. Okay. Ian McGlegan was an incredible musician. Yeah. But I think as a songwriter, well, maybe it, it would have been a better song, but I, it sounds to be unfinished. It almost sounds like Kenny's Down the Pub comes in halfway through. So, like, oh, sorry, now I better start. But he yeah. comes in too late and it almost sounds indecisive. It's an odd arrangement, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: same year, uh, Deep Purple's first album came out, Um, Status Quo's first album came out, The Pictures of Matchstick Men. Right, right.
0: The Naz, or Naz. Right, yep, Naz. That's an incredible album. I love that one to bits. Yeah, I
1: flogged that one to pieces too when I first got it.
0: Electric Ladyland, Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. album came out same year. Big Pink, the band, Big Pink. I wasn't going to sort of bring this up naturally, but just sort of thinking about it, that there's possibly a connection between this phase of the small faces and the band in that... With the musical style, which we'll get to eventually, and the band, they're sort of revisiting an old world, an old school style of music where so many bands are going psychedelic. The band are sort of looking at older themes and an older style of music while still sort of sounding contemporary. And the same could be said of the musical style songs on this album. And I do want to talk a little bit more about musical. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Both parties being steeped in their uh, respective influences that that they, they brought to the album that they made in this year. Now, of course, like all real life experience story, this also begins once a Polytito. And happiness Stan, whose life evolved in the ephemeral colour dreamy most, had his pure existence and this being in a deep jaw of the multicolour of the rainbow. Oh, yes, his home's a Victoriana Charabold. This is a four-wheelful olive out the back grove. Now, as Eve does his deep approachy, his eye on the moon. All time, sometime, deep joy of a full moon scintillating dangly in the heavenly bode. but now only half. Oh, blow your cool, man, he do this deep focus. What is the folly of this half disappearing of the moony most?
0: Let's move on a little bit to talk about another man who's central to this album. Not a musician, poet. Well, yeah, well, I don't know what you call it. Stanley Unwin, who's yeah. the other main figure on this album besides the band themselves. He was a self professed professor. I don't know what he thought he was a professor of. Uh, But yeah, he went by the title Professor Stanley Unwin. Now, I'm sure that any of the British listeners to this pod of our age know him well, but Discovering his nonsense language, Unwinese, was something he could do without a second thought is absolutely amazing. It's a blend of English and made-up nonsense words, and his verse is very much in line with Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky poem, or something that like Terry Jones would have written in his books of children's poetry. I, I believe that Spike Milligan was their first choice, but when that didn't work out, not only did Stanley Unwin agree to it, but I believe that up until he passed away, he said that recording for Ogden's Nut Gone Flake was one of his very favourite experiences. Yep. I don't know much else about him. I believe that in a carry-on film, carry-on regardless. I have for many growthers, almost done in Best in
1: Craven for him. And with all his so I can follow through him to gate for you.
0: I I, I give in. I just don't understand. The other thing, and I'm really drawing a long bow here, but I wonder whether uh, the NAD set slang that they use in clockwork orange and it's probably more evident in the book than in the film yeah. had any stanley unwin influence because there's so many words here i mean they don't carry on like full lines of verse like stanley does but yeah. certain individual words just sound very nonsense rhyming to me like stanley unwood would do so I, I just sort of think it's ironic if Stanley Unwin, who seemed like such a gentle man, had any influence on Clockwork Orange? I'm probably talking through my ass, but...
1: What year was a Clockwork Orange written? So that was written by... 1960 or 61. Yeah, so Anthony Burgess, you know, when he wrote that, and and of course the American edition had to have a glossary in the back to explain the NADSAT language, but I definitely think that it it really is uh, part of that English eccentric character to do that kind of thing Uh, Lewis Carroll did it to a little degree but incredibly effectively and and eccentrically and then Anthony Burgess did it again years later with that book Clockwork Orange and to a degree and beautifully eccentrically but Stanley Unwin takes that whole thing to its logical conclusion Mm -hmm. and an entire sort of new language isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah definitely (laughs) and it is so just beautifully uniquely Britishly Uh, eccentric could only come from that culture, I think.
0: I mean, I'm just sort of wondering whether when he wasn't recording a television show or a film or an album for The Small Faces, whether he Mm. spoke to his friends and family that way and whether they said, Stanley, just talk English.
1: I have no doubt that he spoke to himself like that (laughs) as he's making a cup of tea, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that he spoke to himself like that anyway. Oh,
0: God, that'd be wonderful.
1: You can see, I guess, everything's on YouTube, isn't it?
0: Yes, there's there's a lot of his stuff on YouTube. I didn't get much of a chance to watch a whole lot of the other thing. I would have loved to have watched Carry On regardless, just to see mm. what he gets up to in that. But yes, I did see that there was... Uh, quite... Parkinson interviews, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, now I definitely have to watch that. I wish I'd seen that. to the old cook shop and i tell you what will make me growl. Boiled beef and carrots, boiled beef and carrots. That stuff for you don't be gel. makes you thin and it keeps you well. Don't live like vegetarians until they give the parents. blow out your kite from morning night on boiled beef and carrots. So the other very British thing, and we should really emphasise here that the Small Faces were a very British band, and this is a very British album. Part of what makes this album so English is the music hall feel of some of the songs in here. Now, I don't know how I'd ever describe music hall, what that means to someone who'd never heard it. I imagine that everyone of our age who's listening to this podcast and face it, I'm not getting any 20, 30 year olds listening to this show. (laughs) I doubt it. But I imagine a lot of the people of our age would know about what music hall sounds like. It sounds like you're doing a soft shoe dance. And the thing I find interesting is that a lot of British rock bands from that era, were finding ways to bring the British music hall styles into what they did. And, you know, I mean, like the American experience always seemed to bear that rock and roll, you know, before it all became about nostalgia and repetition. It was supposedly about rebellion and it was a way to stick it to the parents. But when you think about how many British rock and roll bands of the 60s were actually referencing music hall in what they did it's amazing so they sort of obviously a lot of these musicians Grew up with their families standing around the piano and singing whatever songs were of the day. So, listening to bands like Herman's Hermits doing Henry VIII or Mrs. Brand, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, the Kinks themselves, with they tons of them. But you know, yeah. I'm thinking Mr. Pleasant or Sunny Afternoon, uh, which I'll come back to, the Beatles. And when I say the Beatles, I really mean more like Paul McCartney doing mm. Your Mother Should Know or yeah. Honey Pie. Queen, you know, next decade, we're doing. Good old fashioned lover boy. Blur's park life owes plenty yep. to the British music hall tradition. XTC, in their guise as the Dukes of Stratosphere, had that fantastic song, uh, You're a Good Man, Albert Brown. And yeah. even though they're not British. But given, I think that, you know, uh, Nelson, Harry Nelson was a big anglophile and yeah. the monkeys had Davy Jones. So, you know, Daddy's Song and Cuddly Toy, every right. one of these songs sound like you can imagine someone doing a soft shoe shuffle. It's very theatre. It's very much imagined that these, any of these songs could be sung standing around a piano. And uh, I mean, I just love the fact that. The Small Faces incorporated in a more rocky sounding way than it It doesn't sound deliberately retro. They still sound like the Small Faces. They're just not doing R&B on these songs, but maybe it's Marriott's Cockney accent. Maybe it's the one, two, three, four, boom, 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 boom boom type of beat that kenny jones is putting out uh maybe that's a feature of music hall as well
1: they're they're all great great examples of why and how music hall and its american cousin which is vaudeville Mm. um is such or, or was such a great source of ideas and and influence you know because it was really the main source of i guess live entertainment it was variety wasn't it it was music it was songs it was comedy dance acts probably dog acts you know <laughs> All of that kind of stuff, but it was by the people for the people. It wasn't elitist, really, in any way. You know, it it was very, very much, uh, I guess, sort of a, a working class uh, at at a working class sort of
0: level, I suppose. And, and yet, just the the thing I just sort of came to my mind. I mean, yes, I agree with you. It's the antithesis of elitist, and yet. What would have been the greatest music hall style television program every year would have been the Royal Variety Performance. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's of like the British music hall for toffs.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Or was it the Queen slamming it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, with the uh, those of you in the cheap seats, clap your hands. The rest that's of right. you, rattle your jewellery. That's right. Mm. Yeah, Steve Marriott was it was a child actor, wasn't he? Yes, he was, and he did Oliver. Yeah,
1: and you can't get much more Cockney than that you know I mean uh, really, can you?
0: <laughs> no, consider yourself.
1: Yeah, so I mean, he was, again, I'm going to use the word steeped, you know, he was really steeped in in that culture, and uh, I don't know how much the other guys were, but you know, they definitely would have been influenced or or exposed to music hall by parents, aunts and uncles, you know, family, older generations, you know, as they're growing up. So the way that they brought it into their songs is so natural. It lends itself to storytelling songs more than anything. Um, songs on, on this album like Reenie, mm-hmm. You know, Reenie is just a Cockney Knees Up, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Lazy Sunday is exactly the same thing.
0: And Happy Days Toy Town.
1: The, the closing track, yeah. Life
0: is just a bowl of old you wake up every morning and it's there So,
1: live so you know what is it? Life is just a bowl of all bran You wake up every morning and it's there
0: Possibly the one thing that disappoints me about the lyric on that song you you, you sort of think right the whole song is going to be about homespun philosophy which was what these british music hall songs were supposedly about and then i thought okay where are you going to go with that and i was just sort of hoping that there were going to be tons of lines like that in this song and it's it's not really but it's a a great start yeah it's a great start and
1: and uh it does get a little flower powery after that whenever i listen to that so i just always imagine that you know that that maybe. Steve Marriott's father or one of his uncles would, would always say that, you know.
0: Right, yes, absolutely yeah, that makes complete
1: sense. Yeah. Life is just a bowl of all brand. You wake up every morning and it's there,
0: you know? <laughs> so eat your all brand Stevie. about the moon looks happy day's Let's just go a little bit over those three songs normally i think people would sort of discuss the first side and the second side of the album unwin's narration aside this is what would unite the whole the, the album as a whole is this musical stuff on both side one and side two but you know Reenie is it's a sort of song that you sort of imagine would be sung over a benny hill sketch The dockers' delight and a ship's in every night, groping with a stoker from the coast of Kuala Lumpur. And that line towards the end of the song about having your oars out—is there anything <laughs> more Benny Hill than that? You know, I'm just sort of—I'm surprised that they didn't have a boing sound effect. And uh, it's really,
1: really bawdy. Yes, uh,
0: and it's just perfect, perfect music hall. You—you you probably
1: you could imagine all of the cheers that would go up after some of those lines, you know, as, as it's being performed in a
0: in a music. Hall. I'd sort of say, like, the best songwriter of that era in terms of looking at Mr. and Mrs. Britain that just happened to incorporate some music hall, would be Ray Davies of the Kinks. Yeah. He has a look at Britain, the average Brit, and their customs, both with affection and with scorn. Marriott and Lane writing songs like this, they're pretty much sort of saying, well, here's our tribute to that style, rather than making a statement. really is not so much just a song about a hooker on the docks is a piss take by a rock band of a type of you know popular British culture that may have similar sorts of songs around the piano but pretended to be polite you know two decades before Is it a piss take or is it an homage? (laughs) Well I don't know I mean look I know that I'd heard a story whereby uh, Steve Marriott had said like the whole side too and we'll get to this that the whole side too that the story of happiness Stan was something of a piss take I mean he said he came out with the idea while going I think on a barge down the Thames or something like that and seeing half the moon or something like that but I think he was sort of taking a making a statement about how so many bands were getting so serious, and he thought, right, you know, this is not SF Sorrow by The Pretty Things. Let's let's do a children's tale. And even though Ronnie Lane was following the Mayor Barber like uh, Pete Townsend was. I don't think he ever wrote anything as serious or trying to be serious like Pete Townsend. They were all just having a bit of a laugh. I mean, the very fact that they're using someone like Stanley Unwin doing his nonsense narration really means that they're just having a little bit of fun here. I like to think that it's yeah, it's homage, but maybe it's a little bit of a piss take too.
1: Well, probably. They were probably taking the piss out of everything that they did, probably. Yes, yes. They were certainly having a lot of fun mm-hmm. anyway. So in Rini, you mentioned that line about the oars out, you mm-hmm. know. Directly after that, it drops out and there's an overdub of uh, Kenny doing this brushes fill. And it is definitely an overdub because he plays the whole song with sticks, and then this is clearly you know just dropped in. he's just playing this beautiful, beautiful little brush drum fill, which is very, very music hall. Also there's a lot of cymbal catches, you know.:
0: Yes, very which, musical. Which
1: immediately um conjures the, up the images of a music hall, little traps kit you know, and a piano and, and also
0: that da 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 da. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> The second of the music hall songs on the album is the last song on side one, which is Lazy Sunday. I think there were some people who might have made a superficial comparison between that and uh, Sunny Afternoon by the Kinks, which also has its music hall. Feel about it, but yeah. I think that Lazy Sunday—they're really two different songs thematically. I mean, Lazy Sunday is—I I, love—it's beautiful arrangement in that the music hall stuff when Steve Marriott is singing about he pisses off the neighbours and he's pissed off by the previous generation who just don't understand him, man. When yeah. he when he wants to play his music, but when he goes into that smoke induced. I want to close my eyes and drift away. It's that's when the music hall feel of the song drops. Yeah, is a little bit more psychedelic and I also like to think that by the end when they're finishing off in that rocky style when he says close my eyes and drift away and it goes to the fade out he goes to a dream and he's dreaming the story of happiness Stan which you get when you turn on the second side of the album.
1: Yeah, yeah, total change of uh, feel for the play out of Lazy Sunday which sends you straight to run to the record player and flip it over, what the hell's coming next?
0: Mm, (laughs) mm.
1: You know, Johnny Rotten said the only thing that ever influenced his singing was Steve Marriott's uh, Cockney-style singing on this album. Wow. You can imagine that John Lydon would be uh, focused on being himself. No pretense. He's just, this is me, take it or leave it, you know. That's what he viewed um, Steve Marriott's uh, Cockney singing Mm -hmm. as, you know, pure essence of who he is. Why
0: do you dislike rock and roll? It's so
1: dead, it's a disease, it's a plague, it's been going on for too long, it's history, it's vile, it's not achieving
0: anything, it's just aggression. They play rock and roll at airports. There's also that line in there, I'd sing you a song with no words and no tune to sing in your party while you suss out the moon. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it.
1: I think that line is while you sit in the kazi, kazi being slang for the outdoor toilet. Really?
0: There is a toilet in the video for this, isn't there?
1: Right. And you suss out the moon because often those outdoor toilets would have a um, like a, a moon-shaped hole in the door. They
0: did, yes.
1: Crescent moon. That always amused me, that line, uh, sit in a kazi while you suss out the moon.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. But I think given that the whole theme of the second side is about happiness stands contemplation of the moon, Yeah, that's
1: really interesting connection. It it
0: makes sense that that song is the last song you hear before the whole happiness stands sweet. Steve Marriott's Wizard of Oz moment. He's Dorothy. He's been knocked out, falls asleep, and he's dreaming about life over the rainbow or contemplating the moon.
1: Well, sure. I mean, uh, side two is in Technicolor. Yes,
0: it, it very much is. Very much is. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so Happiness Stand, the character,
0: could be one of the Greek
1: Orpheus or uh,
0: Odysseus or something like that. The final song, which we've already sort of gone and referred to because it keeps you regular, is uh, Happy Days Toy Town. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You would have watched the Colour me Pop presentation, right? Yeah. So that's the song where you know we see them do the whole happiness stand sweet on this British T V show. There's a you know very poor version of it, but it is available on YouTube. Yeah, and that's right. I, I love, like, late in the song, we see all four band members just standing around and swaying back and forth away from their, miming to the song, away from their instruments. And that is the whole essence of Music Hall. Four lads singing at the top of their voices in unison. A lot of fun.
1: They're really, really not that far away from George Formby. Right. Uh, in a few cases, there. On oh, this album anyway. cleaning mm. windows to earn on this bulb. For a nosy parker it's an interesting job Now it's a job that just suits me A window cleaner you would be If you can see what I can see When I'm cleaning windows...
0: Alright, so let's just have a bit of a look because we've been talking for a while about all these peripheral things, but just for a few minutes let's talk about the Happiness Stan side of the album. For those who've come in late, so we actually haven't sort of gone and spoken about what the story is about you know, it's, it's a concept half album not the whole yeah. concept and so basically it's about the story of this chap, Happiness Stan who looks up at the sky one day and only sees half the moon because he doesn't understand about science and the moon cycle and all that sort of Thing. So he decides to go on a journey to find out what happened to the moon and he meets a fly that he saves from starvation by sharing his shepherd's pie with. And the fly says, look, thank you for that. I'll help you in any way that I can. So Happiness Stand says, look, I'd like to find out what happened to the half of the moon. So Happiness Stand just happens to have magic powers to turn the fly into something really huge. So he can carry him on his back and take him to a character called Mad John, who can explain the mystery of what happened to the other half of the moon. And that's pretty much it. And it's probably no worse in story than the story about a deaf, dumb and blind boy who sees his mother getting it on with... his father or her lover, depending on the film version or the record version that you look at. But, yeah, it's it's a bit of a thin plot line.
1: Yeah, I think that the uh, Happiness stand is probably a bit more accessible, the story, than Tommy's fairly complicated and slightly difficult to follow,
0: and a little vague story. But is it any more accessible than a quick one while he's away?
1: Ah, well, there you go. See, that's kind of distilled the whole Thing down into a fifteen-minute instant gratification, you know, story. Here's your story. Here's your story. Here's how it begins. Here, here's how it finishes. So happiness, Stan. He does exactly what you you said. He looks up at the sky. He sees half the moon there, and then doesn't understand that the full moon is still there. It's just he, he can only see half of it. He meets a fly, shares these uh, shepherd's pie with the fly, turns the uh, fly into a giant fly so that he can fly. The journey, the song, the music that they, that's got great Kenny Jones. He, he he starts it with a drum fill triplets and this amazing kind of slightly stiff feel but you know it's classic Kenny Jones and it does a great you know that panning from right to left or left to right and like
0: a very 60s thing
1: The really disappointing thing about it, if you're listening to this album for the story, then you will be disappointed at the uh, the payoff, you know, isn't it? Because the payoff by Mad John, you know, oh, I, I see you're still worried about this moon problem. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, well, let me explain it to you, you know. <laughs> something. You know, in Unwinese, you know, which I can't even begin to copy, but as the sun rises in the morning and the moon goes down at night, something really, really kind of disappointing like that. There's no great
0: explanation. You, you, <laughs> you sort of figured that given the fantasy element of the rest of the story, that it would have a fantasy conclusion.
1: Yeah, but it's quite throwaway.
0: Yes. Yeah. But th- So that's why I sort of wonder, should they have, at least once they put this album out on CD, maybe should they have put the Unwin narration as individual tracks probably a lot of Small Faces fans are out there listening thinking no shut up it's all one big thing just take it with the spirit with which it's intended and look to be honest with you when I listen to this I mean apart from thinking about this for the show I don't think so much about the Story as such. I'm just, no. I, I just hear a lot of nonsense verse, which I enjoy, and some great songs, which I just take separately from yeah. from the concept.
1: Yeah, yeah. Musically, it's just fantastic. As a narrative, I don't think it's really the focus. No, <laughs> is it? no. But it's uh, what, a full year before Tommy. It's quite genius for its time, the idea of
0: it. Let's each nominate a favorite cut from Side Two. What's your favorite moment?
1: Okay, I would probably say Rolling Over.
0: Does that sort of sound to you a little bit like they nicked the initial riff from Foxy Lady?
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I mean, it, it probably was something that, you know, a lot of people were playing around with after hearing it, you know, because you, you can't help but pick up a guitar, if you're a guitarist, yeah. you know. Pick up a guitar and, you know, my God, this is good, you know. It feels so good to play the Foxy Lady, maybe, but God, it's heavy. Yes. It's like, it's it's 1968, like it's probably what Led Zeppelin were rehearsing at that time before their first album. Sure. Or the, the new Yardbirds, or I don't know. I mean, it's it's really so heavy and and it's again it's almost like proto grunge maybe Mm. and it's got a fantastic drum break in there again yes yes and he's laying a brutal brutal groove i like to call that one
0: my favorite song from the side is possibly the antithesis of that one and that's the hungry intruder which is the song where happiness stan meets the fly and shares the shepherd's pie with him can you get a more British meal than a shepherd's pie? <laughs> uh, as i would mentioned earlier, whereas Marriott was the one to keep the music in a very heavy R&B fashion, Ronnie Lane was more interested in a more mellow approach in the performance. And yep. that's what we get on The Hungry Intruder. We've gone and spoken about, you know, the connections between the small faces and the who, and they were probably both influencing each other. Now, you know, yep. Marriott certainly sounds like you know, a, a good contender or good rival for roger daltrey in the vocal approach for a lot of things i'd already gone and mentioned how tommy was a gentler album than what we were used to but the same could also be said of the who's Out from that came out i think the previous year yep. from ogden's Nut Gone flake and that's a very gentle sounding album i don't think that up until they got to live at leeds and who's next that there was a record apart from their debut with my generation that probably accurately reflected what the Who, as a live band, were about. So there's a song on *Sella*, probably one of my favourite Who tracks of all time, which is as Who-like as it gets, is the song *Tattoo*. And <laughs> when I hear *The Hungry Intruder*, it almost sounds like they were going for that feel. It's you know very folksy, very British, but maybe also a bit of a piss take on the seriousness of a lot of the other psychedelic bands of the period. I like to think that as much as Marriott is channeling Roger Daltrey in the heavier R&B numbers, I think on this song, Ronnie Lane is channeling the gentler side of Roger Daltrey yep. from the Who Sell Out and, the, and what they would eventually do on Tommy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, a Hungry Intruder is mostly orchestra, isn't it? There's orchestra on it. Yeah. Yeah, But yeah, I mean, it's still yeah the, the, the four-piece band. But yeah, it is gentle is a good word to describe that and, song. It's just
0: such a, a beautiful melody. I mean, I think it's sort of like got uh, Ronnie Lane singing what I'll call the adultery parts and then Marriott himself doing the Cockney thing without the music hall reference
1: and I think Marriott does the happiness stand voice in there it's like drawing focus on on the character for the first time like because you don't really hear his in quotation marks voice until that kind of track which is uh, third track into the story I mean I like that song too for reasons that are probably a little bit more selfish in that you know the the orchestra parts, the strings, or it's probably—I don't even know if it's mellotron—but it's definitely strings doing those great sort of blah 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 da da western style. Oh, you know that Kinks. It's a Dave Davies song, Lincoln County. I think it is my favourite Kinks song. Actually, it's got the same kind of strings on it—really sort of hokey country-style strings, you know—and and but just so perfect in the in the context of this British rock pop sort of thing, you know. I feel the same thing about the Hungry Intruders orchestra parts on that, you know, just so tasteful, so beautiful, possibly done by the actor David McCallum's father. Yes, I had read that, yes. The orchestration on that album, definitely in the, the title track, on the side one, it's very, very, very good and not, not kind of, you know, sticking out like, you know, oh, he's a rock band with an orchestra, but, you know, there's it's done very, very tastefully, I think.
0: Side 1, which we've already gone and spoken about a couple of the songs from Side 1, the music hall stuff from there, but I'd say probably the centrepiece of that side and maybe the centrepiece of the album would have to be Afterglow. Love Love is all around me Everywhere Love has come to touch me with someone who be really No one can deny us. It's a big anthemic song and I'm going to draw a long bow here in and I'm going to suggest that Boston were fans of Afterglow because I detect something with that Acoustic feel Leading into the Big rock organ feel Sounds to me like They they said Hmm What would work on this song More than a feeling Hey Have you heard Afterglow Yeah let's go for that
1: There are some moves That, that it sounds like They've taken directly
0: From this song Yes definitely You're right yeah. Definitely An absolutely gorgeous song And the other thing is I, I'm I'm a big fan Of a great love song Like a really Truly great Love lyric And mm. I think Afterglow More in context of Singing, maybe not so much when you read on paper, but I think that this is a truly great love song. I'm happy just to be with you and loving you the way I do. It's everything I need to know, just resting in the afterglow of your love. Now, there are a million and one love songs out there, you know, some wonderful and some. Cheesy, but when Steve Marriott sings this, I believe it. Uh, yeah. Just such a beautiful lyric. But yeah, musically anthemic, really, really huge. I mean, there, look, there are three types of songs on this album. we already going to spoken in the music hall. There's the folk rock of The Intruder. And there's this fully blown psych rock, which is this song. I mean, I know you've already gone and referred to a song of a baker before, uh, which is another example of that. But for me, Afterglow is just possibly the greatest song on the album overall.
1: Well, I mean, I would agree. It's the standout song, apart from Lazy Sunday, it's a standout uh, song on the whole for the from the whole album, absolutely. Which is probably why Daryl Braithwaite did a did a cover. Right, Dazza. Because yeah, and look, you're you're right, absolutely right about those lyrics. You know, he had me at the first verse,
0: really. <laughs> It's just beautiful. Well, the intro to the song is really weird. At least I mean I believe when they release this as a single later on, they cut the intro out, but it has what I'm presuming is Ronnie Lane, like over an acoustic guitar intro, singing the first few lines in a mock Elvis Presley sort of voice. Well, at least like Elvis Presley, like he's stoned. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? But once... The song really kicks in. It's a masterpiece of the 60s that is not referred to often enough.
1: Often enough. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And it's so sad that, you know, there was so much happened to that band and their product that they had absolutely no control over. It was butchered somehow and then released as a single, sped up as a single after they broke up, you know, and they had no control over it whatsoever. Very, very sad. Such a waste, I think, you know, because it is, as you pointed out, you know, it is a standout song. And such a waste It really didn't get well they didn't get the credit for some of the things that they've done even like we mentioned we talked about before the um i've got mine which is a great 60s pop song was in a movie you know and the movie the the you know they wanted to release the single at the same time as the movie was released you know And it would have been a great tie-in and they released the single you know thinking the movie was going to be released and the movie was months and months and months later you know so it it kind of went nowhere
0: (laughs) the variation of i've got mine which is the title track of this album the instrumental version Ogden's Nut Gone Flake it actually sounds like it belongs at the start of a British spy movie I mean if not necessarily James Bond then it should be uh, something like Michael Caine's Ipcris file it belongs (laughs) in a British secret agent film of the 60s it's majestic there's great dynamics in it that's another one with orchestra I mean why isn't this more well known I I, I wonder as well whether Pete Townsend listened to that and Thought, oh, blind me, Tommy needs an overture, pretty much like. Ogden's Nut Gone Flakers. And it's an interesting position because ostensibly the first side has no concept not like the second side does and yet this instrumental piece sounds like an overture for the whole record. It's majestic. It's not a medley yes. of songs like an like an overture often is but it really sounds like here is what you're about to receive.
1: That's exactly the way I looked at it. When I first put this album onto a cassette that I eventually wore out going back to my, my brother's record collection, you know, I put this onto a cassette. I just listened listened and listened. I used to listen to Beatles cassettes going to sleep at night, you know. I had a, a CD player that I could pan to the full left or right, you mm-hmm. know. So I used to listen to Beatles albums, just the left channel, you Right. Know? go to sleep, think of that. So that actually got me interested in multi-track recording. Wow. <clears throat> but I used to do the same thing with this album and that first song, you know, I'd fall asleep, I guess, during the title track. But because it had the drums, mono drums, you know, panning from right to left at that sort of pivotal moment, you know, it goes to the bridge. All of a sudden, you know, if you're listening just to the right hand channel, you know, the, the drums completely drop out. <laughs> you're left with a piano. And everything's covered in flanging, and it really does sort of sound like it's um it's an overture for the for the entire album. I used to think, you know, that it was part of the happiness stan suite, then I realized, oh, it's no, it's not. So th- just a quick little aside, the flanging thing, the drums are all flanged, you know, that's it's pure psychedelia. My f- very first attempt at multi-track recording was I borrowed a reel-to-reel four-track machine from a friend of mine I had uh, in my mother's art studio in the backyard, I had my drums set up and my acoustic guitar, and I had a flanging pedal and one microphone. I just set the microphone up in front of the drum kit, and I played the drum track to Ichiku Park. Oh, nice. Yeah, through the flange pedal onto track one, <laughs> and then I got the acoustic and same mic, same flange pedal, different flange setting, track two, played the acoustic part of the Ichiku Park. Oh, I don't know, it must have been... 20 years old or something when when I did that. Mm. (laughs) It's just really lame you know but i just loved the whole drums being flanged or phased or whatever so I, i've uh, i've done a bit of that here
0: i look forward to uh, hearing more flanging experiment on your next album
1: yeah <laughs> well there is some actually and to be honest the happiness stand thing or the, the idea of concept um linking songs is on this this next album that i'm working on there's a, a couple of characters a couple of ne'er-do-well characters when do they do well ne'er <laughs> <laughs> um that, uh, that get together over the course of three songs on, on this album, and
0: I'll keep you posted indeed, on that. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, we've spoken for a very long time about a whole range of subjects. Yes. Some of it even small faces related. So before we sort of kill this conversation, any final thoughts about the album overall?
1: I have listened to this album from beginning to end for so, so, so long. I had memorised all of the mad dialogue on side two, you know, and annoyed so many people <laughs> With it over the years, you know. <laughs> Did you pick up girls that way? Yeah, no, no, it's the complete opposite. <laughs> annoying people. You, will you stop doing that? Stop doing that. Yeah, well, I think that no one else that I knew was aware of this album, or, or at least this album. They probably knew the small faces, but did not know this album. So I, I was alone in my in my love of this album. Um, so I'm so happy to be talking about it.
0: With Hopefully by people listening to this conversation, it inspires them to go back and give it a, a new, fresh listen. Hopefully we've said some stuff that gave them food for thought or maybe they might listen to it and say you know what these guys don't know what they're talking about i'm going to listen to it and i'm going to come up with my own thoughts either way it's all good i want to really hugely thank you Ian Kitney, for making this as a suggestion for the podcast here we are 155 episodes in and it's taken this long to bring up really what should be more well known in a lot of people's album repertoire really I think so um...
1: yeah or in, even in their uh, people who are interested in interesting music you know at least you know some uh, awareness if they're not, it, hopefully it uh, plants a little seed of awareness, you know, for what may possibly have been the, the first real concept album or at least side of an album.
0: Because well, I'm not sure. I think if SF Sorrow came out before this, but it certainly it's fairly early. SF Sorrow is even more underrated or exactly less. Yeah, more people should know about that one. That's exactly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll get you on the show at some later stage and we'll talk about that one.
1: Yep, I'll have to find my old cassette of that as well. You'll be
0: my concept record guy. (laughs) All right, so before we head out, I'll just quickly talk about what's happening next month on the show. That'll be episode 156 of Love That Album. I'm happy to bring another first-timer to the show. Uh, This is a fellow called Tom Austin Morgan. He's the host of a fantastic podcast called Band Biographies, and that's spelled B-A-N-N-E-D, Band Biographies, and every episode He talks about the career of a vintage era punk act. And I think he's a journalist by trade. So his research is pretty thorough. He's done some interviews as well, but I mainly sort of know him for his Punk era and New Wave era discussions, storytelling about a range of bands and he does an excellent job. I'm really, really happy to have him on the show. Uh and I think it came out like I sent him a note once saying, Hey, you're gonna cover the Tom Robinson band on your show. He said, Oh that's a good one. Might have to think about that at some stage. And I thought, hang on, why don't I just get you on my show and we'll talk about Tom Robinson? And he said, Yep, fine with that. So we're gonna talk about the first album from the Tom Robinson band, Power in the Darkness. There'll be a lot of stuff to talk about, not just about the music obviously but also about the political era that uh, the trb was born into and tom robinson's career beyond that lineup i think i might have read somewhere like where he said he was never going to get together with that lineup of musicians again but i believe that in 2022 that's exactly what he's doing so anyway we'll have a lot to say about tom robinson and the band and his career as a DJ at BBC and all that sort of thing I'm sure that Tom Austin Morgan who's now playing with one of two incarnations of Sham 69 so definitely he knows his punk this will be a, a really wonderful uh, conversation I'm hoping wow uh, yes so there you go <laughs> next month on the show basically if you want to get in contact look Joanne's already given you the details earlier on in the show I'm not going to repeat them but please feel free to reach out would love to know your thoughts on whether you enjoyed this episode uh, are there any albums that you think i should be doing that i haven't done and of course there are millions of them once again huge thanks to ian kitney Thanks to you, good sir.
1: Thank you very, very, very much, Morris. I'm, I'm I'm so happy to be talking to you, two hours apart, many, many kilometers, thousands of kilometers apart, but uh, it's
0: like you're here in my studio with I, me. I look forward to the day, post-COVID. I was actually wanting to travel to Japan uh, before we met each other. I'm still hoping that day will come, uh, so I'll, i have to make my way to Kyushu to uh, to go and play in your studio with you. That'll be great. Absolutely. And please help me with the farm. Oh, yes. Your, your vegetable <laughs> patch. That's That was the last conversation that we had. I think that was one of the most wonderful aspects of the conversation. you taking your iPad out and showing me. You say, look, I've started up growing vegetables and I'm rather enjoying it. (laughs) So that was, yeah, I'm yeah. going to help you with your yeah. on your vegetable patch. Very really okay. good, thank you. Um, <laughs> until next time, people out there, look after each other, grow some vegetables, chow down on your vegetables, and be nice to each other. All the best. Cheers. We loved all the haters. We love them so much that their hate turned to fear. And shaking from behind their curtains, the loved ones would hear. we